think my mic's on. I would like you to, I would like to turn your attention to your bulletin. And the verse of the week. I don't normally call out a lot of attention to the verse of the week, but it's there so that hopefully during the week you'll stumble across your bulletin and it'll remind you of something from the message and maybe you'll study it a little bit more. But as we go through this series on the eternal struggle, and if you missed last week, you can listen to it online, it'll catch you up. Um, this verse just kept coming back to me as I was writing. We're not even close to the New Testament yet in this, in this message, in this series, if you will. But as I'm, I'm looking, and what we established last week is that from the beginning of time, Satan has been trying to intersect God's plan uh, to bring the Messiah, the chosen one. And we're going to get some more into that. But as, I'm, as I was studying, as I was writing, I kept coming back to 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That hasn't changed even for us today. And so keep that verse handy. And midweek, when it's starting to be a bad day or a bad week, reflect back on that and know that may be true. Satan may indeed be prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you or seeking to throw you off track. But our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has already won the battle. The victory is his. So find peace in that. We're in week two of the eternal struggle. We started out last week in the Garden of Eden. I shared with you about the messianic prophecy, and that is that a boy baby would crush the head of the devil and the devil would strike or bruise his heel. We went through the flood into the blessing of Shem, the curse of Canaan. And now with this curse here, the Messiah has become limited. It says that he shall dwell in the tents or the tabernacle of Shem. We know that the Messiah is going to be born of a woman. And there are three boys on the earth at this point. But the promise has become limited because out of those three boys, Scripture says that he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. The Messiah is going to come out of Shem. He's not going to come from the line of Ham or of Japheth, but from Shem. And I told you last week, Satan's powerful, but he only knows what he knows. He's not omniscient. He's not, he's not what God is. He only knows what he knows. He only gets the information that is given. And so what he knows right now is that this boy baby, this Messiah, is going to come out of Shem. So what would you do if you were the devil? Well, you'll do, you would do what the devil did. And as promised, that's exactly what we're picking up today. The devil, being crafty like he is, got all the people to go into some terrible idolatry. And, and you have to understand where I'm, I'm putting this into like seconds. It, it, this is a series of years. This is not... Just one day, the devil said, poof, everybody's going to be involved in idolatry. He's crafty. He's tricky. He convinces. Uh, he seeks, uh, excuse me, he prowls around like a roaring lion. See, I shared that with you. That's what he does. And these things take time. And so throughout this time, Satan begins to, to kind of trick these, these nations, if you will, these three nations, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, into idolatry. He gets them all to dwell. They all end up in the plains of Shinar. And the Bible tells us they used mud for mortar. And they begin to build this great tower. I'm referring to the Tower of Babel. And they were building this tower, not because they wanted to honor God with it, but because they wanted to reach God. We had a similar problem with that with Eve, remember, when Satan told her, you will be like God in the Garden of Eden if you eat this fruit. And here they're trying to reach God. But God wanted them to stay distinct. He said, through this man, Noah... He said, Cursed be Canaan. He's going to be a servant to his own brothers, Shem and Japheth. 
How can you say there's going to be a Shem? How can you say there's going to be Japheth? How can he say there's going to be Ham if they all stay together and intermarry? There's no distinction there. They're no longer distinct if this were to come into play. There wouldn't be a race of Shem, a race of Ham, and a race of Japheth if they all stayed together. God wanted to spread them out over the earth. The devil says, nope, not today. I want them to co-mingle. Then there won't be a pure race of Shem through whom the Messiah can come. He's muddying the waters, if you will, is is what he's trying to do. And I shared with you last week, not to be sacrilegious or anything, but if you kind of look at this struggle between God and Satan kind of as a checkerboard game, so that was Satan's move. He kind of distracts the people for a while. And then God says, hold on. His move on the checkerboard is, do you know the story of Babel? What's he do? He confuses their language. Wow. The Bible says he confused their tongues so they could no longer understand one another. But what happens when all of a sudden these three different different tribes, if you will, these three different nations can no longer understand each other? Well, Ham went one way, Shem went one way, and Japheth went the other. As they moved away and began to intermarry with the people who spoke their particular language, the genes became more predominant, and that's where the races come from today. Now, approximately 100 to 150 years after the Tower of Babel, and this, this just geeks me out. This is exciting stuff. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, as Scripture is listing the descendants of Noah, and it says in, in Genesis 10, 25, two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg. Say that. Say Peleg. Peleg. All right, I'm teaching you something here. So Peleg was one, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And now what I found interesting about this, and, and I've got to be honest, this is going to frustrate the scientist in you. The, those of you, you're, you're going to go, wait just a second, but just stay with me. That word Peleg means earthquake. It means earthquake. And the word divided there is actually the word split. Okay, Uh, some of you are not. I think you know where I'm going with this. He's not talking about the power of the the Tower of Babel splitting and and crumbling. He's he's saying that after this confusion of the Tower of Babel, they begin to multiply. And there's this fellow born. His name is Peleg and was called Earthquake because in his day, the earth was split. And biblical scholars would say this is when what they call the Continental Divide, that whole thing started to break up. Okay, it's unique. It means that the world, according to Genesis 1, was an island before the flood. Yes, that's what it means. It means even after the flood, up to the Tower of Babel, the world was still an island. But here at the Tower of Babel, when Peleg comes on the scene, everything begins to split and the world begins to separate. And the people on different continents begin to to, uh, co-mingle, if you will. They begin to marry one another. They begin to do things that married people do. And as they did that, the genes became more predominant. And the different races continued to come into being. The devil didn't like that. It secured this line that Jesus is going to come through. And so what did the devil do? He got the people of the Semitic, he got the Semitic people over in that part of the country to fall again. I'm going to put a, a pin in that for a second. As one who seeks to devour, to destroy the father of all lies, Satan always seems to go back. His go-to card, in my humble opinion, is idolatry. His go-to card throughout the Old Testament is idolatry. He continues to convince people their, their past was better than their future, 
and they revert back to different forms of idolatry all through the Old Testament. And God keeps redirecting them. I bring that out because today when you look at our life, you look at our world, what does Satan tempt us with more than anything? Idolatry. (laughs) Stuff. Shiny things. In layman's terms, idolatry is the shiny thing that draws you away from God. Whatever that shiny thing may be. Satan continues to do that and he does it even today. Well, back into the sermon now. He gets the Semitic people into terrible idolatry. There were, there were many nations of the Semitic people, but, but different factions of them are beginning to fall into idolatry. And so God, being God, his move on the checkerboard, this wonderful thing that he does, he appears to this man, an old man, if you will. He shows up in Ur in the Chaldees to a man named Abram. Now, here's the thing. Abram didn't have any children. The Messiah is going to come through Shem. And there are many nations of Shem. Abram was just one of those nations of Shem. And God took a 75-year-old Semitic man and he said, first I'll bless you, which is a personal blessing between God to Abram. He says, first I'll bless you. It was personal. Second, it was national. He said, I will make you a great nation. And then thirdly, was international. He says, in thy seed, which is singular, Christ, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You see, that's a huge promise. He just didn't take any, any Semitic. He took an old man of no particular nation except Shem and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And by the way, you can outline the Bible with this. He promised him a land. He promised him a great name. And he promised him a seed that would be a great nation. And that's what the whole book of Exodus is about. How they became a great nation. The rest of Genesis and Exodus shows that his seed became a great nation, that he got a great name, and then he got that land that God promised. And then finally, he sent the seed that was promised to send in Christ. It's what the whole Bible is about right there. It's the promise to Abraham. Now, you're going to have to, uh, excuse me, you're going to have a name. That's what he tells him. You're going to have a seed. And you're going to have a great land and you're going to become a great nation. And the Bible is laid out to show the fulfillment of each one of these. And so here we are with Abram, an old man. And God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, this is where you got to start paying attention because it, it, it gets tricky. You're the devil. And you know that through that old man, Abram, the Messiah is going to come. What would you do? You do what the devil did. Stay with me. He called Abram, God called Abram out of Ur, the Chaldees. Ur, by the way, means fire. Chaldees means destruction. All right. God called Abram from Ur, the Chaldees. He called him from fire and destruction to go into the land of Canaan. Canaan means to bow the knee. And God says, I want you to leave your father's house and your kindred. I want you to leave your kinfolk, leave your father's house, just your house, and go to a land that I'll show you. First off, God wants to get him away from a bad influence. Think about your own life. What influences you more than your home country and your relatives and your friends and your father's religion, if you will? Joshua 24, 24 tells us that Abram's father, his name was Terah, and he was an idolater. Oh, Satan's Satan's working that. His name means moon in his language. And in the Hebrew language, it means delay. 
God says, I want you to leave your father's house. He didn't mean leave 32 Elm Street or with whatever the zip code might have been. He meant, I want you to get away from your dad. I want you to get away from the family and I want you to follow me. But Abram didn't perfectly obey, did he? Scripture tells us he took his dad and he took his nephew Lot along with him and he brought them into a place. Now you'll notice it says in Scripture, when you read through this, it says that that they came, that Abram came to Shechem and Morah. One of them means the place of strength. The other means the place of instruction near Bethel. When Bethel, by the way, means house of God in Canaan, which means to bow the knee. Okay, you, you, I'm going to put it all together for you. That's where God wants you. God is calling you from fire and destruction to go to the place that you bow your knee to. That is the place of strength. That is the place of instruction. That is the house of God. He wants you to bow your knee to him. Now, these things did have these things really did happen to Abram. But the Holy Spirit, I think, chose to use this to tell us these things because now his life becomes a parable to us and a great teaching tool. People talk about how things aren't in the Old Testament, they're in the New Testament, but that right there says it harmonizes with the Gospels, what I just shared with you. These things really did happen. The devil says, man, I'm worried about this guy, Abram. So what do he do? Famine comes up. And Abram is like a lot of us. We trust God for our salvation, but we don't necessarily trust him for our daily bread. And so what did Abram do? He took his family and they went down to Egypt, which is always a part, is always a type of the world down there. And, and what's the devil wanting? He's got, he's got Abram, who this promised baby boy Messiah is supposed to come out of. Abram's got a wife and, and they're going down into Egypt. It's through this old man, the Messiah is going to come. And his seed is going to bless the whole world. I think maybe Satan was thinking, you know what? If I can get a hermetic Pharaoh to impregnate Sarah, or better yet, maybe I can get him to hate Abraham and kill him so he won't father a Messiah. There are a lot of, a lot of options for, this, for Satan by this family going into, the, uh, going into Egypt for this famine. And so God's move on the checkerboard, and this is in the Bible, he shuts the wombs of the Egyptian women. They couldn't have children. So finally, Pharaoh says, get out of here. You lied to me because they told him Sarah was his sister because they didn't want him to kill him. But he says, get out of here. You've lied to me. But he gave Sarah an Egyptian girl to be her maiden named Hagar. And to Abraham, he gave much cattle. Now, why did Abraham go down to Egypt? Well, because of famine. But I think when you read all all of that, I think he also was getting away from Lot because both of them were wealthy. Both of them were staying in the same place. And when Abram came back to where they were staying, he brought back cattle. Well, Lot had all these sheep and now Abram has all these cattle. Cattle and sheep can't graze on the same land. It doesn't work that way. Territory folks should stick together, but it doesn't pan out. The truth of it is there's going to be a war. The Bible tells us that Abram's men and Lot's men... They were arguing. They were fighting back and forth. Their servants were quarreling. Here's Satan going, hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'll just get them mad enough at one another and Lot will kill Abraham. How about that? That'll work for me. But it didn't. Lot took his family and they moved in next to a, a nice little town called Sodom. The next thing you find, you find Lot and his family in Sodom. And due to that, he's lost his wife, he's lost his wealth, and he's lost his witness. Lot lost everything because eventually Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. But what about Hagar? 
Sarah says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, do you remember we were down there in Egypt? She still hadn't had the baby now. She's not pregnant. They just know there's a promise. And she says, we're down in Egypt. I saw those Egyptian girls and, and, and the Egyptian women would receive their babies born to their handmaidens at, at their knees and act like it was theirs. Here, take, take Hagar and do that. Don't do it, Abraham. That's what I'm yelling. When I'm reading, I'm like, no, don't. It's bad. Sarah says, hey, the, the thing is, the Messiah has to come out of a Semitic. But Abram went to her anyways, and she conceived and had Ishmael. Now, Abraham really liked Ishmael. He said, go, God, that the Ishmael might live before thee. He wanted Ishmael to be the boy. He wanted Ishmael to be that Messiah, that promised seed. He said, through Sarah, though, shall your seed come. And when Isaac is finally to be born, what was the problem between Ishmael and Isaac? The New Testament calls it persecution. The New Testament says Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Maybe Hagar, the Egyptian girl, maybe, you know, and Satan's maybe thinking, hey, Hagar, the Egyptian girl might kill Sarah out of jealousy. That would stop this from happening. These are all attempts on Abraham's life. And so when he did go back to Canaan, he had some experiences. Now, I told you, he shouldn't have taken Lot along with him, but he did. He shouldn't have taken his father along. While they're out there, what happens to Lot, do you know? He went and got himself kidnapped, his whole family. They get kidnapped, and, and along with other people from Sodom and Gomorrah. So what did Abraham have to do? Got to go save Lot. So he straps on his sword with his 318 fighting men, his servants, and they go fight a battle, which, by the way, that's a battle that Abraham would have never had to fight if he'd have left Lot and his father at home. In fact, I might even be suggesting that the battles you're fighting today are because you disobeyed God yesterday. You didn't totally agree. You didn't totally obey God. Today and tomorrow, you will fight the battles because of it. He shouldn't have taken Lot with him. God said, leave your kindred. Leave your family. Leave your father's house. And when he did leave Ur, the Chaldees, he lived in Haran. That means parched or fruitless. And he lived there for seven years. Abraham's daddy's name, I told you his name meant delay. Taking Lot and, and his dad with him delayed the promise of the Messiah by seven years because he took his old man with him. They lived in Fruitlessville for seven years. God never, this is true, God never appeared to Abraham. He didn't speak to Abraham during that seven-year period. There's nothing in Scripture where God reached out to Abraham during the seven-year period that he had delay living in Fruitless Town, Fruitlessville. And it wasn't until Abraham came to Canaan and bowed his knee, and I explained all that to you a minute ago, he came and he bowed his knee, and then God appeared and started to speak to him again. And God reiterated that promise to him about the seed and that he's going to get the land and he's going to become the great nation. So the devil does his best to try to kill off Abraham and he causes him problems with cattle. Listen, folks, I got to tell you this, too. I keep going back to the cattle in Egypt and that kind of thing. But here's the reality. When you try to bring the world's goods into your spiritual inheritance, there's going to be nothing but trouble. God's inheritance that he was giving to Abraham had nothing to do with cattle from Egypt. It had nothing to do with other gods. It had nothing to do with worldly things. It was God's promise to Abraham. And, and Abram spent this time continually getting caught up and bringing some of these things into his family and into his life. And when we do that, our, when, when we mix, when we bring the world's goods into our spiritual inheritance, there's going to be trouble. 
But then God gives Abraham this promise. He says the Messiah is going to come through him. The Messiah is going to come directly through Sarah. I'm going to make your seed as numerous as the stars in the heaven and the sands on the seashore. And I'm going to give you this great land. So Abraham had these promises. There were several attempts on his life. And here's another thing. If you read through the Old Testament, you will know what Abraham's sins were. They're listed. He took his father with him. He took Lot with him. He lied about his wife twice. That happened twice. Two different famines. Uh, The second time they went to Abimelech, similar outcome as in Egypt. These stories aren't in the Bible for the fun of it. They're in here to show us how the devil tried to prevent Jesus from coming into the world. But now here's Abraham. He's 100 years old. He has the boy Isaac. And he's proud of Isaac. And God says to Abraham, what does God say to Abraham? Yeah, give me Isaac. God says, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to take your pre-named, miraculously born, only begotten son to the Mount Moriah, to one of the mountains that I will tell you of. And what did Abraham do? He got up the next morning, saddled his donkey, took two young servant men with him. And on the third day, they traveled three days. On the third day, he saw the place that they should go. And this is what he said to his servants. He said, you boys stay here. Me and my boy are going to go over there and worship the Lord. That's kind of my, my uh, paraphrase of that. He, but he, he doesn't stop there. He says, we will come again to you. We'll come back to you. He took the wood, gave it to Isaac to carry. The Bible says with both of them together, walking up onto Mount Moriah, Isaac said, Dad, here's the wood and here's the altar, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, my son, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering. And I'm happy to say that God provided a ram in the thicket and it was offered as a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. I want to dig into this a little bit because here's the thing. Because Abraham believed in God, it was accounted to him as righteousness because of that belief. And because he believed in God, he demonstrated his faith. And God said, now I know that you fear me, seeing that you would offer up your only son. Now I need some audience participation. I need you all to put on your sanctified imaginator hat. I gave you one last week. And I want you to think about this with me through a totally different lens. It's one of those things that may just blow your mind. And somewhere around lunchtime or dinner, you're going to be like, no way. What I just shared with you about Abraham and his son is a picture of the gospel. Once again, the Bible teaches that Abraham is the father of the faithful and that we are to be children of Abraham and we will be heirs of Abraham if we are Abraham's seed. Well, how do we become Abraham's seed? Well, we believe about God's son what Abraham believed about his own son. Abraham, take the pre-named. You shall call his name Isaac, you shall call the boy Isaac. Take your pre-named, miraculously born. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. Take your only begotten son whom you love to Mount Moriah, to one of the mountains I will tell you. Years later, the temple was built on Mount Moriah. But it is to Mount Moriah, to one of the mountains I tell you. You see, the place where Abraham offered up Isaac It's the same place where Jesus died on Calvary. Same mountain, same geographical location. Any good Bible dictionary will tell you that. You didn't need your sanctified imaginator hat for that, but keep it on. So he says, Abraham, take your pre-name, miraculously born, only begotten son, whom you love, and kill him. And Abraham believed God because he told the servant boys, you stay here, we are going to worship God, and we will return. He told those boys, both of us, we, that's, That's plural, more than one. 
we will return. Hold on, Abraham. I thought you said you were going to kill him. I am, but God's going to raise him from the dead. How do you know that? Well, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, And Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And verse 19 says, He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Listen, in Abraham's mind, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead for three days. You see, you see those prison movies, of guys walking to death row, dead man walking. That's going through Isaac, or Abraham's head while he's walking with Isaac to worship God because Abraham knows what's been required of him. It was a three-day journey. Three days. Sometimes I can't follow God for 20 minutes. We laugh because we're all there. A three-day journey in your mind, knowing you're going to sacrifice your son. Think about that for a second. Take the boy and kill him. He said, I will. And he went. And on the third day, he saw the place of sacrifice far off. Abraham thought Isaac was dead. But more than that, Abraham was confident in his God to follow through with his promise. Because he was specific. This boy. That's where all this is coming from. Through the boy, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham thought, if I kill him, God's going to have to raise him from the dead in order to keep that promise to me. Man, that's faith. Isaac had that firewood on his shoulders. Think about this. Keep that hat on. Isaac had had the, the firewood on his shoulders and he walked up the same hill that Jesus carried his own cross on. The Bible says, he says to his dad, dad, where's the wood? Here's the altar or here's the wood. Here's the altar. Where's the lamb? And now listen to this prophecy. My son, God will provide himself the lamb. Not what not. He didn't say God will provide for himself a lamb. He said God himself will provide a lamb. There's a difference when you when you use those words right. And so because God provided himself a lamb. Excuse me, God himself provided a lamb. Abraham called the name that mountain Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will see to it or on this mountain, the Lord will provide. Abraham found out that obedient faith results in substitutionary death. That's what Scott found out this morning. Obedient faith results in substitutionary death. That's something we need to hold on to. And if you want that substitutionary death, you've got to believe about God's son, what Abraham believed about his own son. You've got to believe that the pre-named, you will call his name Jesus, miraculously born, born of a virgin, only begotten son, though dead, arose from the dead on the third day. And you've got to believe that and you've got to act on it. And when you believe it and act on it, it's counted to you for righteousness. And you are called a friend of God. Amen. Now, a lot happens with Isaac and his boys. Uh, Esau and Jacob, and I want to encourage you to look through their story. I want you to see how the devil tries to do these different attempts on Isaac's life. And even the story of Jacob and Esau are very impressive when you look at it through this lens. Uh, By the way, I mentioned the sins of Abraham. Did you know that after he offered up Isaac, no sin of Abraham is ever mentioned in the scriptures again? It's another one of those things that you kind of go, whoa, never thought about that. For time's sake, I got to make a big jump forward. We're going across 
over Isaac's boys, over Joseph, who, by the way, Joseph, um, the devil tried to take Joseph out of the picture because he was part of that lineage, but it didn't quite work out for him that way. And if you study it, there are over 40 comparisons between Joseph and Jesus that are very impressive. I want to encourage you to find them, but we're still going to keep going. We're going towards the life of David. But remember what I said in Genesis 49.10, or what God said to Judah in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You need to keep in mind, the Messiah is coming out of a particular tribe, the tribe of Judah, of a particular nation, out of Abraham, of a particular race, the race of Shem, out of a woman. So we're narrowing down the Messianic prophecy, if you will, as we go. And we're going we're gonna to move forward through the slavery in Egypt, through the leadership of Moses, the conquest of Jericho, the saving of Rahab, the prostitute and her family, the passing on to, from the leadership to Joshua, the harrowing adventures in, the, in Judges, and all of these times were challenged by the devil to try to stop the Messiah from coming into the world. And then here we are, David becomes king. He goes from shepherd to king. Only God can orchestrate this kind of story. Remember, David had great successes and feats of strength as a shepherd. Killed a lion, killed a bear, killed Goliath, to just name a few. Scripture says he also took Goliath's head with him from from Hebron to Jerusalem. Some scholars think that when you mention the place called Golgotha, the skull, that that's where David buried the head of Goliath. I had never thought about that until I got into this study. Something to think about that our Savior is on the cross and he's, his blood is flowing down over where the skull of Goliath is, is buried. In this story, there are 18 attempts on David's life that started with King Saul. King Saul kept trying to throw javelins at David and Saul said, whoever, whoever goes out and wins this battle, I'm going to give my daughter to him. So David took some men, he went out and won the battle. And he came back, but Saul had already given that daughter away to somebody else. He said, but I like you, David. I want to give you my other daughter. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out and and collect 300 foreskins from the Philistines, and you can marry my other daughter. I got to let you know, fellas, don't give those up easy. It wasn't good. David brought back twice as many as he was asked to take. Listen. He went out and he fought. He won the hand of of Saul's other daughter. But this is just Saul trying to get David killed. This is just the devil making attempts on David's life because it's narrowed down to this is coming from David. But listen, the prophecy was this. A root would come up out of Jesse. He is a descendant of Judah, the father of David. The Messiah is coming out of a particular woman, of a race that is Shem, of a nation of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of that nation, and now a particular family of that tribe, the family of Jesse. And it goes one more. He's going to tell David, the Messiah is going to come out of your house. It went from this big, and now it's quickly funneling down as we get into the life of David. Next week, we're going to look closely at this prophecy. We're going to look at how the devil tried hard to mess things up for David. And for others along the way. But as far as today, I've shared a lot of things with you from God's word. You have kind of taken a big drink from the biblical fire hose, if you will. And I understand that. It's a lot to swallow. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to soak in. But I want to challenge you. Don't take my word for it. Don't just walk out of here and go, well, Farrakh said that P-Leg means earthquake. It's true. Go find out for yourself. 
Find these things out. Dig deep. And revel in the promises of God that you find in His Word. As we come into our response time this morning, I want you to think about what I said earlier. About how we should consider God's Son the same way that Abraham considered his son. The whole point of this series is that you will see the devil worked hard to destroy what God has set up for us from the beginning. And as and, and I shared 1 Peter 5.8, he's still working hard today. Christ is setting up an eternal place for us in paradise where we will be in his presence. God desires a relationship with us now that will secure our place with him in eternity. Will you be like Abraham? Will you follow him? Will you be like Abraham's father and delay? Will you be like Lot? Choose to stay closer to the world than to God. If you don't learn nothing, anything else from the life of Lot, you can learn this, that the closer you get to the world, the farther away you get from God. And in Lot's case, the world consumed him and it took everything he had to give. Maybe you need to repent and pray about some things. Our elders are here. They'd love to pray with you this morning. Maybe it's the first time that you're hearing some of this and you're ready to make that confession. You're ready to die to yourself in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by declaring Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Whatever your response is this morning, will you stand and sing our response song with us and respond to God's Word? Hey, it's been great to be here with you all this morning, to worship with you, to celebrate Scott's baptism, to... Have communion and offering. But now it's time to go. As you go this morning, go, like I said, remembering 1 Peter 5 8. Satan's out there and he's seeking someone to devour. And I pray that as we go, we'll go with a refusal to allow him a foothold, to grab a foothold in our lives. Also, as you go, I want to encourage you to go and eat spaghetti. Give money. If you can't stay, I understand. We have to-go boxes. See, it all falls into HCC to-go. We can, we can get you spaghetti, your salad, your bread, all in little to-go boxes. And right next to the, the to-go containers, we also have a donation jar, too, to help get these kids to the Christ and Youth Conference. And there's cookies. There's always cookies. Lots of desserts. Lots of desserts. Hey, word on the street is there are some amazing desserts from a world-renowned chef who is now retired and anonymous, but lives their life serving the Lord through confectionery loveliness. <laughs> Listen, you can't put a price on that kind of dessert goodness, but we'll allow you to try, okay? Sing this last song with us.